experiences. And I think that the more that we uncover who we are and why we do what we do, you know, um, where our intentions lie, where our habits come from, where our thinking patterns come from, I think you could really make breakthroughs and, you know, reach kind of like your quote unquote full potential. Um, and I think that therapy can be that place where you can explore those deepest corners and, um, you know, the corners where you can't always reach. Welcome back to Off the Clock Coffee, where we talk all things coffee, adulthood, relationship, careers, all the things. I am Brie, and this is what? <laughs> I am Brie. And yes, I'm Angela. I... <laughs> they can't tell. They can't tell. Pretty Anyways. sure our voices are different enough, but I'm I'm one half of you. I don't know why I'm just so nervous. But, I've definitely said that before. I'm like, I'm Angela. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've done that at least like three times. So anyways, I'm nervous because today is a very, very special episode. We have a special guest. A special, dun, dun, special dun. guest. Yes, For our this... 20th episode. Holy crap. <gasps> oh my God. Wait, you're right. It's yeah. too... Or why did I say it? it is two zero? <laughs> like obviously, <laughs> it's our twentieth. Wait, that's that's a really big milestone because I remember when we celebrated our tenth, and didn't we get like coasters for ourselves or yeah, something we, like that? <laughs> and then we got shirts. But maybe this time around we could do merch and you know provide it for our listeners. Yeah. Who knows? Let us know if you're you're interested. But yeah, today is special. Because this guest is a super awesome friend of ours, Michelle Shim. We are so excited to have her. We also call her Shimmy. Um, she is from California. Why do I say that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not from here, so I feel like I need a special. I'm not either. That. I'm not Okay, either yeah, we're guy. all, yeah, we're not from here. But Shimmy is, are you from here, Shimmy? I don't know. Sure, she'll let us know. She's about to come on. Um, <laughs> but she is a Korean American and she is a mental health therapist. She's also a dancer. She is super into fitness and she just has so much to give. And we're just here to have some girl talks and pick her brain. And um, we also got your questions that we will share at the end of this. So stay until the end if you want to get your questions answered. Okay. Shimmy. Hello. Hey, <laughs> Come on, boy. <laughs> Thank you, ladies, for having me. Um, yes. So cool. Congrats on the episodes. Thank you. I'm just so excited to have you on because you have been someone who I've looked up to for about years and years. How long have we known each other? You should share how did, mm -hmm. how you guys met. Like EGC days? <laughs> yes, that was 2013. So we have a friend, a mutual friend, and she had a project that we would perform at, at certain competitions. And so that's how Shimi and I met. We have met through dance through mutual friends and um i saw you as a big sister and you joined Aww. good and i joined good so we reconnected there mm -hmm. and 
yeah, I'm just happy because our listeners will be able to have you as like their big sister and you'll be able to share their knowledge with them. So, yeah, I think I met Shimmy when this was actually before we really knew each other, but I actually took your class at Snow Globe when you taught Love on the Brain. And that was back in like 2017. So, but little did we know, and we have a photo together from that class too. I was one of those students, y'all. I was like, can we take a picture together? (laughs) She'd be so famous. (laughs) Yeah, we were fangirling, like my group of friends at the time we were visiting. And then now, you know, we've already traveled to Portland together and what else we've partied together probably we've just hung out we've we've gone so close i think the portland trip is what brought us super close so mm-hmm. isn't that crazy that is crazy That's so crazy. um yeah yeah so why don't <laughs> do you want to tell listeners just a little bit more in depth about like your background or just fun facts that you feel like your list you want the listeners to know about you yeah um Let's see. I'm born and raised in Southern California. So yes, I'm definitely from here. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm an only child. So there's like a fun fact there. Um, I definitely have an obs- a weird obsession with dogs. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so you're a dog person, not a cat person? Yes. I definitely am. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll still sell I'll, I'll still look at some little cat videos and pictures and the ones that Bree sometimes sends over <laughs> oh my God. expose me I do send you <laughs> fat, fat cat pictures but I, I if I see your dog Angela I definitely know we'll be like the bestest friends she's sleeping over here oh <laughs> um yeah I don't know um I, I definitely am thankful that that you know you guys have thought about bringing me onto your podcast and it's so cool to and inspiring really to see like how you guys are using your platform and your words and encouraging other people and so I'm I'm excited and I'm I'm very blessed and honored that you guys would have me on this on this platform so Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And I feel like one of the key topics that I think our listeners wanted to hear about is the mental health and self-care, especially in this in this time of the year, or I guess just in 2020 to 2021, this whole pandemic, um, I think we can all agree that mental health was extremely challenged at all levels and everyone kind of went through their own journey. And on top of that, our sense of self-care also was changing as our lives were changing. And I feel like because of your knowledge and expertise, you know, talking to so many different people that have gone through their own personal journeys, you have so much knowledge about, you know, how you think, how you've seen other people navigate this, but maybe yourself, like, you know, Mm -hmm. you've navigated this in a very unique way. Um, so yeah, I guess what, and also with your career, I'm sure it's like in the pandemic, it's been much, much more needed than ever to have mental health therapy in your life. So I'm curious how the pandemic 
has made an impact on your your job and your your day to day as a as a mental health therapist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, when I <clears throat> when I first started working as a therapist was also the 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 time when COVID started. So mm-hmm. um, at first we were seeing. I was working at a community mental health um, outpatient clinic um, based out in Orange County and was working mostly with the youth, um, children, adolescents, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, We were seeing clients in person and then maybe like two months into the job. um, And and mind you, there was a very big, steep learning curve as I started the job. But um, as soon as I started getting used to it, went went on the pandemic. So that was a really big change, like Mm -hmm. uh, going from from in-person to completely telehealth. Um, And I'm sure that, you know, everybody can kind of relate what that was kind of like, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there there definitely was um, an increase in... Um, I'd say uh, the clients that were being referred to us, a lot of teens and children at the time were coming in with behavioral issues, mm. you know, family conflicts, because um, mm. they're home all the time. Oh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was awful. Like school was going online. Nobody knew what was kind of the right way to do school and education. Right. So, parents were stressed, kids were acting out, you know, and, um, so that was probably one of the biggest things that I've noticed. Um, uh, and it was also my first year there. So I don't really know how, how much it affected in terms of like data wise, like if, mm. but based on what my colleagues and coworkers were telling me, they they did mention that, you know, there's just been a lot more referrals. We were, I think we were servicing like 30 clients per clinician and we were. Oh, wow. Um, that sounds like a lot. It was. And it felt like a lot. Um, there's not even 24. I mean, there's not even 30 hours in a day. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're working 40 hours a week. So 30 of those, I, I mean, I'm assuming mm-hmm. each session was like an hour. I mean, that's, that's more than half your work time. Yep, totally. And and given that we were in the community mental health, like in mm-hmm. like a contracted clinic, you know, we had so much documentation to um, stay on top of, which, you know, it was just excessive. And mm-hmm. that's kind of just like the, the system faults. But, you know, that was kind of what we were struggling with. I kind of want to rewind back a little bit and ask how you got into this position or this mm-hmm. field and what made you want to pursue this, this field? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always, I always like ponder on how I answer this question because I didn't think that I could do the job. Um, there was a time where I really just wanted to work in schools and stick to counseling in schools in like a academic setting um, so I didn't, I personally didn't expect myself to be, become a clinical therapist, um, because I felt like I, you know, wasn't going to be able to do it, um, I think. But what led me to my career now is, um, 
I had applied to a bunch of school counseling positions after I graduated from my program. And I think I applied to like 50 or 60 people, like 60, 60 people, <laughs> 60, like, you know, employers and districts mm-hmm. and nobody was hiring. Um, so I took it as a sign and, and, you know, started to look in the other direction. And um, the moment I looked in that direction, uh, you know, a door had kind of opened up um, a friend um, named Gibson, who's also an old old school um, part of the community, the dance community that we're, that we're familiar with. Uh, she, she actually was the one who helped me get the job at over at the youth clinic community mental health. So that's kind of how like my career just, you know, took off from there. Um, so I'm only in my second year, but you know, there's still a lot for me to learn, but I definitely um, probably wouldn't have been able to pursue this direction if those opportunities weren't waiting for me, you know, if I didn't look that way. So, yeah, I felt like that the universe, I I believe that the universe has things in store and they're kind of, it's there to push you in that direction. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, when you were looking one way, maybe there just weren't as many doors open, but the moment you had looked a different direction, like all these opportunities came mm-hmm. and now you're, you're second year in into like cl- being in a clinical therapy, which I think is really cool. Yeah. yeah. Especially since, you know, your old friend from the dance community who has been there for years and years redirected you to this path. So I think that's so interesting. Like God is really just telling you, Maybe look here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely felt like, yeah, like definitely like God was on my side. And, you know, it was discouraging after like looking for so many different positions and like having, you know, doors shut um, on me and stuff. And um, yeah, it's crazy because when I in high school, like I, you know, had always, I was like, oh, I really want to be a school counselor because I had like a counselor that, you know, like helped me through a really bad high school breakup. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I like, you know, saw that counselor as somebody who had been like made a huge impact on my life. And, you know, I thought for a second, maybe I would do mental health therapy, but it looked scary. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool to see how, you know, how God will, you know, uh, remind us and use our gifts in, in those ways. So that's, that's so cool. Even, even when we don't think that we have, we have them, you know, we have what we take, what it takes. So that yeah. is, I just want to say that is so cool that you, when you were in high school, you knew to go to your high school counselor to <laughs> to go to, to talk about a breakup. Because <laughs> when I was in high school, I definitely did not have the awareness to, you know, be like, I'm going through something difficult. Let me reach out to a counselor that is available. Like, I, I mean, I, we all had high school counselors, but I, I think it's so cool that, you know, that counselor made an impact on, on your teen years. Yeah, it was great. I, I, I didn't know about them until, um, her name was Miss Chan, I remember. And, and I would leave like fourth period, which was like one of those fill-in periods 
um, and would, you know, come up with an excuse to just go sit in her office and talk my, my life away. And she would just be doing work and I would just be sitting there and being heard and listened to. So I'm very thankful for her, for that lady. Was she an, an Asian American? Yeah. Do you, think, do you think that was like the reason why you felt comfortable? Possibly. Um, I, you know, looking back in hindsight, probably I, I, there were a, a good amount of um, Asian American faculty and students at the school that I grew up in. So I did definitely feel more comfortable around, you know, Asian American women. And, you know, given that, um, you know, parent relationships can be so complicated. It was nice to have someone as like a trusted adult who is mm-hmm. also like similar, you know, um, ethnic or cultural background in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask because I struggle with this and I'm sure a lot of our listeners struggle with this. Um, for you as a professional, how do you separate work? And then, you know, with work, you have to have so much space for your clients and you're listening in and you hear all their traumas and, you know, their problems, but how do you handle that and not bring it home? Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it was a very easy, simple thing to learn or pick up on. I I think that that still becomes a, um, a challenge at times more one day's, you know, one more days than others, I would feel, you know, overwhelmed by some of the things that I hear or some of the things that get shared. Um, Like today, I had a client who is struggling with, she's a 39-year-old woman who's struggling with coping with her infertility issues. And Mm. while I don't exactly know how it feels like for her to be in this situation, I sometimes leave sessions feeling helpless and, and having to remind myself and let go of the responsibility that I sometimes feel over my clients. And I think that's the hardest part. Um, so I think that like just kind of that self-talk is really, really helpful. Um, also Julian is like a really great support in that, um, you know, now that we live together and, um, you know, Julian's my, my partner and, um, uh, he definitely reminds me that, you know, their clients are going to be okay, that um, I still have me and that I need to take care of myself physically, emotionally, spiritually, right. and in all those ways. So um, yeah, it's definitely a journey and it's not easy sometimes. And some days it comes easier than others, you know? Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the the how challenging that divide must be, but also how the accountability that you might feel that uh, on yourself, feeling like you have to be responsible for maybe someone else's happiness. I'm sure it naturally just comes being in that that field of work. So mm-hmm. it. It, I can't imagine how much like positive self-talk you have to constantly, you know, remind yourself to, I guess, de- to, not to be there, but then to detach when, when that like session is, is over. Um, yeah. 
I know even it, it's actually really cool to hear that because the the boundaries between work and life is reflective across so many different fields like in in the healthcare industry uh mental health in tech corporate industry there's always those few things in common where at least for me i'm seeing this this resonates because with it's really easy to like when you perform well at something in a job you reflect it on yourself saying like i'm like i'm a good person because i did well but then if something happens where you don't perform as well at work, then it also reflects or you, I feel like I have to really try to not say it's not because of me or that I'm a bad employee, that maybe there's just circumstances that, you know, maybe today just wasn't the most productive day or today fell short a little bit, but that doesn't mean I as a person am falling short mm -hmm. in life. and. Um, I can see how even as being a mental health therapist, you also have to kind of say, remind yourself like, you know, e you know, I, even though if I wasn't able to maybe help this client to the extent that I wanted to, that it's mm -hmm. not because I myself am not like a helpful person. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you make a good point and I think that it's not going to be like a performance equals identity. And it's hard to detach mm -hmm. myself sometimes from that. Um, I, I come to realize that maybe it's, maybe it can be like um, society or a cultural thing, you know, in terms of like the Asian American work hard because our parents brought us here and we need to make it worth it, you know? And um, I, I like what you said. And I think that's, that's totally, totally relatable. Which actually speaking of, since you mentioned Asia, our Asian Americans, you know, what do you think are the mental health stigmas that exist in Asian American communities mm -hmm. here? Because mm -hmm. I know all three of us have probably had some shared overlapping like childhood moments, maybe that's all collectively from like deeply rooted generational Asian American ways. But I'm curious coming from you what you what you think those stigmas are and maybe your thoughts on how it could be debunked, maybe. Mm, yeah. Um yeah, I would definitely say that um we're many common terms I hear when it comes to Asian American and you know Asian mental health is that emotions are a bad thing or negative emotions make you weak or, um, you know, some things that I've kind of realized is that the stigma, um, of mental health is normally around, um, should I be feeling this or I shouldn't be feeling this and judging those experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I know that there are stigmas where there's institutional stigma where, you know, kind of like a larger scale companies don't necessarily um, see mental health as something that is a priority and can be seen as, oh, you've got issues um, instead of, hey, let's give you some paid time off so you can take care of yourself. And then there's kind of like the individual stigma, the self stigma 
where you can have your own negative reactions, whatever that might be, anger, anxiety, sadness, and you can cognitively, you can judge those experiences as a bad thing. Um, And so oftentimes, like when I'm meeting with Asian American clients, like right now I'm working mostly with adults and I'm hearing some of their stories and I'm hearing some of the internal dialogues that they have with themselves. You know, oftentimes I do see that as stigma. And, you know, um, I think that education plays a really big role in um, debunking, I guess, or challenging those, you know, arguments about mental health. And I think a lot of it comes from like how we uh, educate our families, you know, and, and starting from our most inner circles. Um, yeah. Damn. I love that. That was so well said. I think it's absolutely true. Education. I, for us, I think it's also reflective of the newer generation too. Uh, We, you know, we, our generation, we came from uh, immigrant parents. And now that our generation has finished school, higher education, now we're in the professional world, we now have all the resources, um, like under our belt, I guess, to, to be able to say and be aware of when we're going through um, when something is like a mental health crisis, or when something needs to be recognized, um, when it's not. And um, he- hopefully, Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was going to credit social media for that because there are cons to social media, yes, but there are pros. And I think for me, I was was exposed to the mental health stuff and resources through social media, Um, learning how to actually process my emotions and how to recognize when I am in a crisis because I think our generation like what Brie said it almost feels like they feel a sense of responsibility to share those resources to make sure that everyone is being taken care of um, to just allow us to prioritize ourselves first before everything else. So I really do credit social media or just like the educational system or our generation. There's a bunch of factors, but definitely um, I think now it's a lot more um, accepted, I would say, mm-hmm. but we're still progressing, I would say. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely, yeah. I, I wanna ask this because I've been thinking about this a lot, And um, most recently, I had been told, um, anyways, I wanted to ask, do you feel like the mental health industry is really benefiting the people and really helping them to, you know, get better? And I ask this because I have a person in my life that asked for help, you know, because they were going through a crisis, but then they were put into an institution because they were deemed crazy. And um, yeah, I guess I would like to hear more of your thoughts on that. Like, how do you feel like we could either improve? How do you think like 
where do we fall short? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's, I think that's hard because when I think of it from like a clinical, like perspective, our priority when it comes to suicidal threats or, um, reason to believe that there's harm coming towards our clients, we throw confidentiality out the window or the therapeutic relationship out the window to keep a person safe. So, but I also, again, don't know like exactly what, you know, they've been through, but I do know that there are systemic faults in how we refer clients out, how, um, the supply and demand of mental health therapy is um, is constantly, you know, tip uh, seesawing back and forth, mm-hmm. um, especially after the pandemic. And that's just from based on my observations and conversations with other colleagues. Um, so, um, you know, I'm still learning um, about those. I guess, gaps in systems. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, you know, those are the first things that kind of come to my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I can see how that can play like a negative impact on providers, on, on therapists in general. And, um, you know, I can see how that can be challenging for the person who's hurting you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause speaking from experience, I obviously would like to get some help, but that's always been one of my biggest fears. Like if I were to open up to a therapist, what if they think of me as, you know, crazy quote unquote, or what if they, you know, refer me to this hospital and, you know, I'm going to have to experience that. So what type of what would you say to someone who is on the fence, you know, feeling the same way as I did before, who wants to seek the help, but is afraid of taking that step because of the, you know, negative or the worst possible case scenario? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> I'm like, how do I answer this? I like to think that finding the right therapist for you plays a big role too. Usually I like to encourage clients, you know, to, you know, prioritize an open communication in the, in the therapy relationship at first. Um, That's usually the first go-to when it comes to like starting therapy with somebody. Um, So I would hope that, I'd probably say that I would hope that they would, you know, give it a, give it a chance in a way that you're kind of like, it's like dating, you know, it's like finding the right therapist and the right fit for you, but they're not going to institutionalize or like refer you out to a more higher level of care. If, you know, if you're say, for example, when it comes to like suicidal ideation, passive suicidal ideation can be just thoughts only and not necessarily a means to be referred to a more higher level of care. It can be treated through 
you know, talk therapy through a more mild, moderate level of care. But if people have plans and have plenty of risk factors like substance use, um, you know, trauma history, um, um, you know, an unstable environment, you know, um, if they have really big highs and really bad lows, you know, those are reasons mm -hmm. to have consider a higher level of care. But I also want to actually, now that I'm thinking about it, um, I think I would tell the potential client is um, reminding them that they are, they can be empowered to have those choices. Like you don't have to feel like you need to go to this place because that's what the therapist said, or that's what the professional said. At the end of the day, you you are your own client and you are your own expert in who you are. And I think if there are effective therapists out there, they would be the ones to say that, you know, they would say and empower clients to feel like they have a choice and about where they go or where they receive services. And it's kind of all about how open and communicative you are. If you are fearful of those experiences, you know, I would share it at the first appointment, you know, at, as soon as you talk to them, um, talk to them about your, you know, your own either stigmas or your own reluctance and just starting therapy. It's okay to be open about that because, you know, most of the time therapists do want to help and do want to meet you where you're at. But, and it's sometimes hard, you know, when, um, you know, when you don't feel like you have that space to share that. So I think those two things kind of came to mind. So that was kind of like a, <laughs> a spiral of thoughts, but that's, no, know, that things. was great. Thank you for sharing. Um, I do feel that was beautiful. Yeah, I, I do feel a little bit more comforted. You know, I'm sure that the listeners would too. So thank you for, for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I also have a question. It just popped in my head, but um, for perhaps there are some listeners out there that can relate to this, but um, I guess what is your advice for those that maybe feel like for the most part, they uh, perceive themselves as stable and they don't know what maybe therapy could be beneficial or how therapy could be beneficial for them. Um, I always have been told, you know, therapy does, you don't have to wait until something's wrong with you to go to therapy. Um, but on the other side, I'm curious, you know, if a person that perceives themselves as relatively stable, um, you know, chooses to go or is hesitant to go, you know, what, could be your advice to them to kind of maybe show them like, you know, there are potential benefits from this and like, what would that look like? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it goes along the lines of, <laughs> you know, I think everybody is, has goals, whether they feel like they can reach them or not. And um, I'd probably share that therapy can be an experience where you uncover certain parts of you that maybe have held you back or like patterns that you've kind of repeated throughout your life that maybe holds you back from reaching those goals and things like your career or things like your your family relationships you know i i believe that um 
yeah, you don't have to be in a place where you're in a crisis or in a really bad low to go to therapy because um, the reality is that therapy humans are so complex and they come with so many different package sizes, you know, and, and, you know, different traumatic or non-traumatic experiences. And I think that the more that we uncover who we are and why we do what we do, you know, um, where our intentions lie, where our habits come from, where our thinking patterns come from, I think you could really make breakthroughs and, you know, reach kind of like your quote unquote full potential. Um, and I think that therapy can be that place where you can explore those deepest corners and, um, you know, the corners where you can't always reach. And, um, I forgot what I was saying, but that was, <laughs> that was so helpful. No, yeah, no, that was, that was great because I often forget that therapy is there for you to really learn about yourself versus it only being for crises, you know? Um, uh, cause I know a lot of us we're experiencing, you know, imposter syndrome or just like a block, not feeling inspired. And maybe therapy mm -hmm. could be that, that um, resource for you to get over that hump. Mm -hmm. uh, we often yeah. go to our friends for those things, but maybe a therapist can really identify those, those patterns or to give mm -hmm. you more of a push. So. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Um, I also want to take um, this moment to kind of switch gears um, into, because we talked a lot about kind of just everything about the stigmas of mental health. Dance has obviously been a huge part of our lives. It's what tied our friendships together. Um, do you do you believe there are any crossovers between your career and dance? And if so, what what are those? Yeah. Um that's a good question because I've been thinking about that quite a bit in terms of the intersectionality of dance and mental health. Um, I do see that um, there is one like lacking data in the community about mm. how common or um I guess, in terms of just gathering information on if people have experienced episodes of depression or anxiety and how many of these people. And, you know, one of the things that I talked about at the our old dancing, the good projects, um, uh, mental health training was that the dance community that we have kind of evolved ourselves um, through. Um, most people are in this age development of like 18 to 35. And that's usually kind of the time where we're figuring out ourselves, meaningful relationships. And um, there is a... Um, a well-known um, psychologist named Eric Erickson way back then he came up with like these stages of development when it comes to, you know, uh, a child. And one of the stages that they talk about is um, intimacy and isolation. And 
um, that stage in our lives is very much in that age range. And I notice, and this is just from my observations, again, there's way lacking data in terms of like, you know, mental health and dance, which I hope one day would be something a little bit more normalized. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I noticed that how we create relationships in the community really impacts how we identify with ourselves, you know, our competence as dancers, you know, and then therefore our competence as people. And I think that um, there is a lot of education that's lacking in, you know, the community. Um, Right. So, yeah, those are kind of like my thoughts right now. And I would hope that one day, you know, um, it can be more explored and more accessible in terms of mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Can you, I think, oh, oh, go ahead. No. Were you going to ask the question that I'm thinking you're going to ask? About the... <laughs> I don't know, but my question, <laughs> or what was your question? Go ahead. Oh, I was, um, I, speaking of just trying to make mental health, like more a of awareness and dance community, I wanted to ask what type of advice you could give leaders or new leaders in the dance community in regards to mental health of their team and their students. Um, I think formulating like subgroups or some accountability measures in like, um, whether that's, you know, a mentor that they people get paired with in the team, or um, they have you know, mini groups or mini teams that they are in using intentionally to check in on people and in their lives. Um, I think normalizing those vulnerable conversations, um, whatever that may look like would probably be a great start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having those temperature checks, um, making sure that the leaders themselves are maybe even keeping themselves aware and educated on mental health and how to identify some of those things in their team members. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, it would be awesome to see, you know, kind of a, you know, a more prevalent step in like more leaders who are prioritizing mental health, vulnerability, connection, like genuine connection with others. And I think, um, yeah, it starts from the top, definitely, and how we educate them and how we help them become aware. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier about Good Project and how you came in and mentored them and gave them the mental, mental health resources. Can you elaborate more on what you discussed, especially since not every dance team has a resource like you, a professional in the mental health industry? Um, Would you be able to give some insight? Yeah. um, Let's see. So long ago. Um, I I think I remember... I like created like a PowerPoint slide and everything and I did not end mm-hmm. up using it at all. <laughs> I just remember that. But um, yeah, I think one of the things that I kind of did was just wanting to, um, 
I came in with the intention to normalize just talking about mental health and not seeing it as uh, and destigmatizing it. Um, so we talked a little bit about what what they thought mental health was, if they have had their own challenges or someone that they know um, with mental health. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, what you know depression can look like, what anxiety is, how that feels in our body. Um, why that comes up. Um, we also talked a little bit about, you know, um, you know, identity as a dancer and our identity as a person. Wow. Um, and yeah, it was it was pretty cool because you know what I had them do. One of the activities that we did was. I had them do a, something called a values assessment. And it's something that I, a resource that I use often with some of my clients. And basically it walks you through um, the different values that are important to you as a dancer, like things like being growth-minded, love of learning, you know, excellence, you know, being really good at our craft. And then I had them flip the page and do the same thing, but them for themselves as a person. And so for some people, um, there were some values that were different. Like some people valued more um, adventure and or self-care as a person. And as a dancer, they valued mm. hard work and consistency. And, and not being spontaneous, you know, like sticking to, you know, um, a routine. Um, so that was that was kind of like a really cool activity I remember doing. And then also um, the directors on the team had led like a um, almost kind of a dance therapeutic role um, or a therapy exercise where they, you know, had some prompts um, and listed out some prompts about um, please step forward if you know basically had they had the team split into the room and I remember doing that yeah it was <laughs> cool and we came up with different phrases like step forward if you have you or someone that you know has struggled with depression and you know almost everybody came up to each and every one of those places and you know they did like a contact freestyle and like kind of just introduced this dance and intimacy which was like really beautiful i, I like legit cried like a baby <laughs> no we had team members that cried too that was probably one of the most vulnerable things that i've ever experienced as a dancer yeah yeah i truly love how like good project has been just practicing that and prioritizing that you know i think considering everything that we've been through as a team um mm -hmm. it's really really like amazing to see them being pioneers of that you know um yeah so go good project <laughs> yeah no thanks for sharing that um i think we actually have four minutes left to do some listeners questions i feel like we definitely want to get them in um angela do you have them yes already pulled up do you want me to read it or are you gonna read it i can read one you... we can popcorn okay okay so one one listener asks what are your best mental uh what are your best tools for mental health best tools for mental health okay 
Um, some things that I love to use, I'm, I'm very strength-based. I'll look for the things that people are good at. No matter if you see, if you feel like you have strengths or not, every human being has um, a gift and a strength. Um, I think, so that's one of the tools that I use, kind of just a strengths exploration. Um, in terms of like coping tools, like coping mechanisms, I definitely um, really enjoy our community jacuzzi. <laughs> <In our context>. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> That's the most important. So I, like I need ways to relax and I, I carry a lot of tension in my shoulders and my body. So that's kind of like one of the ways that I like to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Um, and you work out I, too. Yeah, 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 definitely. And exercise is like such, it's like such a big impact or an influence on how I value and care for my body and self, because I believe that if you're, if you take care of your body, it will take care of you. Yeah. And, you know, um, yeah, so like definitely exercising, um, you know, hanging out with friends, um, what else is there? Oh, I have been really getting into puzzles recently. And <laughs> Wait, that's awesome. <laughs> I feel like like a 58-year-old like, <laughs> Asian Emma, like trying to, yeah. But um, I think puzzles, what it does for me, it just kind of like puts my mind and focus on one thing. And mm. instead of like restless and like having all these racing thoughts in my head, um, I can just like focus my attention and wind down that way. Yeah, it's like um, quick dopamine release, you know. Yes, especially when you're like have been like looking for that one piece for like three days, and you finally find <laughs> three days. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like it's like constipation, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh! Please, when it comes me. out, that when feeling. it comes out, it feels great. Yeah, exactly. See. You get it. We know that feeling. We know that feeling. Yes. Um, okay. So our next uh, next question from another listener is, um, we'll do this one. A favorite place Shimmy has traveled to. Oh, I love this. Um, <laughs> oh man, I love traveling, and I'm getting really nostalgic just talking about it. I think. Hmm. That's really hard to say. I want to say the Philippines, um, mainly because of the reason why we were there. Um, yeah, I, oh, I yeah, definitely. I that. Yeah, it was a very, uh, it was like a missions trip that Sodium, a Christian dance ministry that I was running at the time, um, you know, were invited to go out there and teach dance to, you know, uh, really, really low income communities. And um, I thought it was just such a beautiful and also humbling experience. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that and and a lot of things were cheap there. So like we could do things like swim with whale sharks for like, you know, dollars. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm not gonna get that here. <laughs> um yeah, I would say that's one of, there's a lot of beautiful places I've been, but one of the most memorable ones is that, and probably Thailand too, when I went with Julian, so that, but that's another story, so, 
Yeah. I love yeah. it. Um, Angela, you want to ask Maybe the next one? Maybe we could do one? this one as the last one. Okay. Yeah, because we're... Uh, okay, so last question. This is from another listener. He asks, how do you navigate clinical burnout? Hmm. <laughs> Ending with a bang. Hmm. <sighs> I think... I think it's hard because burnout can feel also like just overwhelming stress. Um, I think taking care of myself comes first to mind. And whether that's like, am I, am I burnt out because I'm, I'm having compassion fatigue? Am I burning out because of paperwork? You know, am I, you know, feeling burnout because it's just a lot of lot to process when it comes to like my clients issues um so I think help what helps me is kind of categorizing and like you know figuring out where the burnout is coming from and knowing what I can say no to when it comes to like things like um uh like things like you know social events or things like um, chores that I feel like I have to do now, but don't really have to do now, you know? Um, Yeah. I think that for me, what helps me move through the burnout is knowing and being aware of my own anxiety and restlessness because what happens to me, and this is kind of like an educational piece, but like what happens when there is anxiety is that there's cortisol levels are high and you're, you're, bouncing back between a fight or flight, fawn or freeze response. And when your body is in that state, you need something external or something to relax your body so your brain can stop functioning, over-functioning or doing too much. Um, so I guess wow. like one of, the, mm. one of the ways that I feel like I need to, you know, avoid burnout is being aware of how I'm moving. So sometimes like after work, I'll start organizing a bunch of stuff in the house and Julian, my partner needs to come in and be like, Hey, like stitch your ass down. We need to, you know, like you chill. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, okay. You're right. And, And so I think it helps to have that community as well, obviously, but yeah, just being aware of my restlessness and, and, when I can let go of things, um, or thoughts, you know, um, what kinds of thoughts I can keep and listen to and what kinds of thoughts I don't need to listen to. Um, is it benefiting me? Is it hurting me? You know, it is, yeah, it's a lot of mental energy I'd say. Um, but yeah. Honestly, I felt like I was in a class, like learning straight up just education <laughs> being spooned acknowledged into my like deep like into my my brain because mm-hmm. you're just so knowledgeable of this I don't think I've actually ever had like this is probably my first time having a really serious um like conversation about like you kind of your profession is kicking in like you're in like work mode when you're talking which I think is kind of cool when you're answering certain questions Mm -hmm. and it's just really really insightful to learn about how the brain works and the fact that you 
just explain that in a way that was understandable for someone mm-hmm. that isn't in your field like that that's really awesome yeah oh, thank you. especially like connecting the science behind it and like what your body's actually doing when you're going through that that you know crises or whatever i think that will help you know just rationalize the feeling and you know all of that but yeah it's amazing to see you in this the other side of shimmy so thank you (laughs) so so much i think this is one of my favorite episodes ever because i've learned a lot um listeners feel free to let us know like how you felt if you want to reach out to shimmy and you can find her on Instagram at M-S-S-H-I-M-M-A-A-Y-Y. That's M-Shimmy. And we will share that on our Instagram so you don't have to memorize that. Thank you. Well, I, if I could say, like, thank you very, very much. I think that I was, um, to, I guess, the listeners who are listening to this, before, you know, we jumped in, I was, like, very grateful that, you know, you know, Angela and Brie were able to give me a platform to just reflect and talk about these things. And um, I don't think that I often feel like I'm not, you know, learning enough or doing enough sometimes. So this was a great reminder for me. And so it, I think, I, I think it's so lovely that you guys bring in guests and yeah, it's so beautiful. So thank you. Um, yeah. You guys are awesome. Hard yes. questions too. <laughs> For sure. Um, so if listeners feel free to, if you haven't already, follow us on our Instagram at off the clock coffee. Um, shoot us any messages if there's another topic that you want us to talk about or an, another guest that you would like us to bring on. Um, and if you do have questions for Shimmy, we, we will share her Instagram handle on our story. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's it so with that we'll all just say our goodbyes and we'll see you in the next episode bye bye